I'm Rachel Quetno, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upsound, the show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upsound it. We talk about it in depth. I am subbing in for Abby this week. Um, I'm the program director of Strong Towns, and my guest today, as usual, is Chuck Maroon. So, Chuck, how are you doing? Hey, Rachel. I'm doing fantastic. I feel like you and I have not done this together for a long time. It's nice to uh, <laughs> it's nice to be able to do this. You and I get to talk a lot, and we work closely together. But uh, we don't get to do content together as much, as often as we used to. So it's cool to be here with you. You too. So the article today that we're discussing is from Time Magazine. It's called Americans' Addiction to Parking Lots is Bad for the Climate. California Wants to End It. Some of you that like to follow the parking mandates conversation are probably already aware of this, that the state of California... Um, Let's see. Starting in January of 2023, according to the article, cities in California will no longer be able to impose parking minimums for housing, retail, or commercial developments that sit within half a mile of major public transit stops, according to a new law. Obviously, that's not a blanket elimination of parking minimums, but it's a big step. And this article was framing things a lot in terms of like, this is good for the climate. We know at Strong Towns that there are many, many benefits to getting rid of parking minimums. Just a few of them, um, allowing business owners, homeowners, cities to respond to changing needs in their community, develop new properties, start new businesses much easier when you don't have to build a big parking lot next to your home or business. Um, Getting rid of parking minimums makes other forms of transportation like walking and biking easier because it shortens distances between places when you don't have a huge parking lot in between everything. Increases the tax value of properties, makes cities just more pleasant places to be, frankly, when you don't have to walk past a derelict parking lot on your way to, you know, your house or whatever. So all of this just by getting rid of these rules that mandate parking in a lot of places and letting people decide for themselves about whether they actually need parking. I particularly appreciated a quote from everybody's favorite Donald Shoup, the king of parking research and advocacy. Um, He said, I believe the quote was that that the impact on cities for this change in California is going to be immense, but slow moving. Um, And that is certainly like what we see when we've seen city after city make this change across America. It's it's not something that's going to change your city overnight, um, but it is over time going to allow a lot more flexibility, a lot more development, all those good things. I had the Development Services Director of Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, Jonathan Kurth, on my show, The Bottom Up Revolution, a couple months ago, and he was talking about that exact thing. Like, They got rid of parking minimums for commercial um, developments in their city, and yeah, they didn't see like 10 new businesses crop up in the next month, but over time, they've seen new businesses get to open and new homes get to be built, so it's you got to be patient, but when you make this change, it's really positive. So, Chuck, what was your reaction to uh, this news in California? Well, my first reaction was Time Magazine. I didn't even know that existed still. Um, (laughs) So I'm uh, 49, and when I was a kid, like Time Magazine was the thing. I used to buy them 
all the time. I've got the, I still have the Time Magazine from the Tiananmen Square Massacre, from the fall of the Berlin Wall, from, yeah, like I have all these that I bought at the time. I'm like, this is an historical event. I'm going to buy Time Magazine. I actually have not read Time for a a long time. So it was kind of cool to reminisce. To me, there's there's like three different things going on here. And the first one is the actual rule itself. The second one is this kind of longer term thing. And the third one is is the value of, of top-down interventions yeah, like this. Definitely want to get to that part. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about this this rule in general. Time magazine builds this up as like a this is a big change, but you put it in perspective and Shoop puts it in perspective too. The actual rule just says that you can't require parking minimums. It doesn't say that the developer can't build as many parking spaces as they want. It doesn't say that the uh, financing corporation that's uh, financing your six-story condo unit can't require you to have a certain amount of parking spaces because their Wall Street checklist for securitizing your loan and pooling it in with a bunch of similar loans requires, uh, as part of their checklist, a minimum number of parking spaces. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things in this flow of we're creating so much excessive parking that this thing doesn't get to. But to me, it does something really important, which is it it says to me what is like the most logical statement you could possibly make, which is we have as a state put a massive amount of investment into a transit stop at this location. We are not going to muck up that investment with park with low productivity, low value uses. I was in Sacramento earlier this year. And one of the things that one of the cities around Sacramento, I was, I was touring and I was meeting with public officials and they brought me out to this transit stop. And in my naivete, I assumed that this was a relatively new transit stop because it was a stop surrounded by parking lots and like undervalued uses. And they were talking about ways to get, you know, infill in place and get developers in and start building it out. And then I came to discover that it had been there like two decades. This is horrific. And it is one of the dumbest policies that we've had to make these massive investments in places and then allow them to essentially be cannibalized by parking lots and low value uses. It drives down not just the property values, but the actual use of the transit system that that you've created. So it it has like this double negative effect. I, I feel like California is way, way, way behind behind on this in terms of they've been really out there on building the transit, but then really, really, really behind on actually making it viable and making it workable and making it used. This is a small band-aid on how far behind they are, but at least it acknowledges that if we're going to have this massive public investment we're going to do, we're going to try to take reasonable steps to actually make it useful. I feel like this story got attention because it's like, whoa, the whole state of California, obviously it's a very populated state in our country. It's a lot of influence, but I was glad to see that at least there was like one paragraph that mentioned how many other cities and towns have already gotten rid of parking minimums and done it fully as we've been tracking for many years with our parking minimums map. 
Um, and they mentioned that map in the in the article, which is great. But yeah, we know that there's been progress being made on this for a long time and good to see California like joining a little bit. But yeah, let's talk about the like the value of a statewide reform versus local decision making. I was just having this debate with my mom a little bit because we were talking about we were talking about national versus state control of things. And to me, it's like she was like, oh, we should just be making everything, all decisions at the national level. You know, this is a globalized world, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like everybody is in favor of top down control when it's their person in charge. And then you get somebody you don't like in charge and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, local power. You know, we saw that with the like the sanctuary cities movement under Trump and stuff like that. And all of a sudden all these Democrats are very much like local control. So, you know, it's easy to be pro state control when it's doing something that you like. But when it's, you know, it could just as easily be something you don't agree with. And then you've got this massive decision impacting the entire state of California. So. Yeah, what what are your thoughts on this policy being made at the state level versus city by city? It's very interesting because we've had to deal with this with the the housing single family housing issue too, where states have come in and said you are not allowed to have exclusively single family housing zoning districts. And as a movement, that's what we've been advocating for for a decade, right? Is is that cities should do this? Yeah, we've got a whole incremental housing campaign. Right. I think the tension comes, you know, at what level of government should this be done? I have tried to evolve my thinking a little bit or be more open to the idea that there might be a state and federal role for making some of this happen. Representative Jake Auchincloss, who I've I've gotten to know uh, a a little bit, I would call him a, a friend. We've had these conversations about parking because he is a progressive uh, Democrat in Washington, D.C. He signed on to the infrastructure bill, which we thought was a horrible bill. And we we talked about the role of the federal government, and we specifically talked about parking. And his comment to me as a former council member, now congressman, was, Chuck, these cities are stuck. They're stuck because they've had these free parking things for a long time. When you take something away, constituents show up and mad. It's a constant fight. It's a constant battle. You don't want to expend that much political capital to get a parking lot, re, you know, redone. Like it, it's just a heavy lift. And the federal government has a role in coming in and saying, "Here's a little bit of money if you can shift this policy. Here's a little bit of funds to make this work a little bit better. Here's a, a nudge in this direction." And I, I think that I, I mean, I, I I get where he's at. I always point to Prop 13, which you might not have been for Prop 13 in California back when it came out, but the majority of people were because it was done as a referendum. This idea that we'll have a statewide policy on property tax that will simplify things down and make it very efficient and make it fair across the board. And it's become like the worst uh, tax distortion in the country that has just drawn, you know, has, has induced all kinds of horrible development responses. So I, I feel like there, if there's a role for a higher level of government in doing this, what I would like to see is that role be essentially phased out over time. In my mind, every city should be doing these parking reforms on their own without needing anything else because their own community is going bankrupt because of 
these massive investments they put into infrastructure that are being used for parking lots. You've got parking lots that are served with sewer and water and storm sewer and all these, you know, road, and it's really, really expensive. And you've got no tax base, no wealth being created as because of it. If we just looked at the dollars and cents of every city, no city should be mandating parking. No city should be giving away free parking. No city should be doing this at all, but they are. Why? And they are generally because we've created this top-down system that induces that, that subsidizes that, that makes that work. I can see the top-down system having uh, an intervention that would say, okay, for the next 10 years in California, you can't require parking minimums in the downtown. You can't do it. And in fact, uh, you can even, I might even go a step further and say you can't build any new parking in the core downtown, you know, within, or you can't build any core parking within, uh, you know, 500 feet or 5,000 feet of a transit stop. Uh, we've invested a billion dollars here. Uh, we're not going to clog it up with parking. I could see the state doing that. I would want them to eventually phase it out. Because I think all of these things should be nudges in a direction, and then we should see organically where it goes, right? Let's get rid of the problem, but then we need our cities to be organic places that can kind of respond in, differently in Sacramento than they respond in, you know, Jake Aconclaus's district, and different in Minnesota than in Milwaukee where you're at. I, I want a system where cities are organically built and organically responsive as opposed to kind of programmed from the top down to be the same everywhere across the country. Yeah, I think the responsiveness is key. I would be more opposed to this if it was like the state of California saying like, no one can build a parking lot ever again, you know, or for the next five years. But the idea that they're just saying, you can't put these parking minimum rules in place uh, hopefully will allow places to be more responsive. I mean, I think we can all agree that there are, there is a time and place for parking. You know, I go to the grocery store in my car. It, it, it is good to like be able to park my car and put my groceries in the car, like, of course. But does every apartment building need two parking spots per unit? Of course not. So, Well, and if you lived in a neighborhood with really robust transit, you know, the idea that we would start today with the configuration that we have, and then over the next two decades, transform into something where the the localized transit would ramp up, the regional transit would now become more functional because it has more ridership. And during that ramp up, uh, there would be more units being built while parking would be phased out. This is a really weak set of rules, right? Um, you know, the, the idea that somehow if you're living, you know, within half a mile of a transit stop, that tomorrow you're going to be looking for parking where today you weren't is absurd. Like it won't happen like that. But I think we can look for something that would reconfigure things. So maybe you would get to a point where I, Rachel Quidnow, do not need my car to go get groceries, right? I mean, that, that is like an aspiration that I think a lot of us could have. It's probably not practical today, but this particular set of rules or even parking reforms in general uh, don't take away parking from people overnight, right? Yeah. I would say overall it was, it was heartening to see this topic covered in a major publication and interesting to read. Like they go into some of the history of parking minimums and things like that, which like as people who are steeped in this conversation about parking minimums, I was like, okay, I, I know all this stuff, but 
it was good to see a broad public be reading about this and educated about this stuff because it's one of the many urban planning issues that it's very easy to completely overlook and never realize that this these laws are in place in our cities and then when you do realize it you feel like wow this is really messing up my place so it's amazing to me and and i want to ask you about the climate change aspect of this because you know there's a set of beliefs around climate change that get you to support things like this and in California, the the maybe the politics of California or the culture of California lends itself to giving this an overall climate framing, right? Yeah. So the headline is headline. this is yeah, Americans' addiction to parking lots is bad for climate. Okay, like is bad for the climate. Period. And I, I look at that and like part of me just cringes because I'm like, okay, that. True statement. Like, I'm not going to argue that's not a true statement, right? Um, but it's like a it, it's like saying uh, lack of exercise is bad for your marital uh, relations. It's like, okay, sure, it, it might be, but it might also be bad for your own personal health, and it might be bad for your children, and it might be bad for, the, you know, like your future medical bills. It's like an incomplete statement, right? Like, there's so much more there. and And I feel like you know, as California does become this national or, or is de facto because of its size and its geography and, and is like the de facto leader of uh, what I would just call uh, repairing the suburban experiment, right? California developed in the suburban experiment. They are almost like the prototype model of the suburban experiment that everybody has copied. When you go to California, there's very few genuinely like well-designed, well-built places, the vast majority of the land area is auto-centric, auto-oriented. And the places that are good have been places that have been retrofitted at really high cost and with really great effort. Doing that at scale is a huge, to me, like California can either be like the leader at doing this, or they can just continue to kind of struggle and suffer under this. When they do lead, the leadership tends to be like this. It's bad for climate. And I feel like there's a missed opportunity here to complete that sentence, to like add a whole bunch of things that would make it more applicable as you go further west or as you go further east from California, would make it more applicable to Denver, would make it more applicable to Omaha and to Kansas City and to Indianapolis. And we just go further west and like all right, I'm not saying that people in Kansas City or Indianapolis don't care about climate change, but my gosh, there's like a thousand arguments we can make here about why parking lots are a bad land use that are really having a negative impact on your community that we could tack on that doesn't come through in any of the California conversation. I would love to see Texas be a leader in parking reform, right? And if we were if we were crafting this for Texas, nice. <laughs> well, you you look a little skeptical. If I'm if I'm the governor of Texas instead of the governor of California, I'm saying I want to get rid of parking mandates because 
Why is the government telling developers what they have to build? Why are we stifling small business startups in this way? Why are we giving a competitive advantage to global international corporations at the expense of our own small businesses? Why are we hurting our tax bases artificially and, and, and raising taxes on everybody to subsidize uh, out-of-town, out-of-state businesses? Why, why are we doing this? Why is this our public policy? We should end this policy and here as governor, I will sign this legislation to try to nudge us off of a bad set of habits and get us into something that would be more productive. I would love to see Texas be a leader in that. And to me, I just said all that without mentioning climate change or any progressive policy. I don't want to see parking reform captured by progressives. It shouldn't be. It should be a universal American thing that we recognize is really screwed up with our development pattern. Yeah, there are so many reasons to get rid of parking minimums that totally cross any political differences, geographic differences, um, something we can all get on board with. So everybody should check out our End Parking Mandates campaign, strongtowns.org slash parking. This has been an ongoing issue that we've been working on for many, many years now, um, but formalized into our one of our newer campaigns. So check that well, out. And I I do appreciate that uh, the Parking Reform Network, who's a, a partner of ours, got mentioned specifically in this article. They, they are doing great work as well, and they've been responsible for helping us maintain this map and keep it updated. So if you're interested in seeing what cities are leading on this, and if you're interested in putting your city on the map as a leader in parking reform, uh, yeah, go to strongtowns.org dash parking. Is that what we're talking about? And you can see yeah. all that information right there. Yeah, definitely check that out. Sweet. All right. I think it's time for the down zone. This is where we hear what you're reading or listening to or watching. Chuck, what is your latest interest? I can't remember if I brought this up last week. I, I always forget week to week. Like, what did I bring up? Um, so I apologize to people if Wait, I did. I don't think you were on last week. Last week was Daniel, if I remember correctly. Oh, good. Then it probably wasn't me. last time you were on, yeah. Um, there's a book called The Proud Tower by Barbara Tuckman that was recommended to me that I've been going through. Barbara Tuckman wrote The Guns of August, which to me was like the best uh, book explaining the beginning of World War II, World War One, uh, which the beginning of World War One is utterly fascinating. Um yeah. You know, you 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 hear these today. Uh, the analogy uh, would be it would be analogous today to North Korea launching missiles over top of uh, Japan and launching planes that fly along the South Korean border, and you do it like over and over and over and over again, and everybody runs for shelter and everybody hides, and you scramble your defenses and all this, and then nothing happens, and then it happens again a month later, and a month later, and a month later. This was the lead up to World War One, and then all of a sudden, bam, there's this an explosion, and it happened, like it went down, and it's one of these things where you kind of knew there was tension there, but was it going to really happen or not? So Barbara Chuckerman wrote The Guns of August. It was an astounding book, just amazing. Um, someone recommended to me this collection of essays called the in, put together in this book called The Proud Tower, which went through like decades ahead of this Guns of August period of time, the World War I preamble. It gives like a backdrop to what was going on in the world. There's a there's an essay about the anarchist movement. There's an essay about the Dreyfus Affair in France. 
And each one of the, I mean, she is such a great writer and the research is amazing. And the way she communicates ideas is really compelling. And I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's really high quality writing. Cool. Okay. Yeah. How about um, you, Rachel? Didn't prepare for this. I forgot about this. Part. Oh, come on now. <laughs> um, well, okay. So I don't listen to audiobooks very much. Like I know many people are like very into audiobooks and like listen to them while they're driving yeah, yeah. or whatever. But what I do is my husband and I listen to audiobooks like while we're either playing cards together at the end of the day or like doing chores around the house, like laundry or dishes or whatever. So we usually listen to Harry Potter. And we've done that, like all the books, many times. And then we recently finished all three Lord of the Rings. And then we're like, what are we going to do now? Because um, I feel like it needs to be something that we're somewhat familiar with. Because if if I'm multitasking, I can't do like a new book. Otherwise, I'm not going to pick up on everything. So we settled on Dune because we had both seen oh. the movie. And so I'm really like, okay. we're only like a few chapters in. But it's pretty dark. But it's I have never read Dune. I've been told that I need to. I've been told that it's really good. But you're doing the audiobook and you like enjoy the audiobook. Yes. I'm hoping there's a new movie out at some point. Um, I think it's I think it's next year, if I'm correct. There's okay. what they came out with was a two part. I think there was gonna be one two combination. Yeah. I think the next one is next year. Um, yeah, very fascinating to me because of the, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but especially there's like this whole like religion layer and this like mm -hmm. religious community that has these like secret powers. And as someone that likes studying religion, I find it, I've, I've been really interested in that part of the book. Yeah. Um, your, people might not know this, but your undergrad degree was in what? Uh, religious studies. And then your master's degree was in? Same thing. Technically yeah. called the Master of Theological Studies, but yes. Right. So you have a lot of background in this. That's fascinating. I, yeah. I will check that out. Um, I want to ask you a question, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but you uh, told me that you really like uh, the Great British Bake Off show. I do, yes. You do. I, for some reason, so I've watched a couple episodes. I love to bake, as you know. But mm -hmm. have it's not found the show. It is almost. I've not found that show to be like like I've not been attached to that show. That's okay. Um, but for some reason, my news feed this week, my my Google curated news feed gave me this thing about some like really bad uh, feedback that the British Bake Off show was getting for what they uh -oh. called Mexico Week. Oh yeah, this is the new season. I haven't started it yet, but I, oh, you uh, haven't started it yet because I was looking at this going. For, for the stereotype that I have of the British uh, Bake Off show is that it's very British, right? It is, yes. And and I'm feeling like I'm just kind of fascinated in this train wreck of like, how does British do Mexico? Um, you know, I joke often when I'm out giving talks that Taco John's is our uh, version of Norwegian Mexican food. And, you yeah. know, I feel like we have uh, bastardized Mexican food here with our mild cheddar cheeses and our excessive amounts of salt. Um, but I recognize cream. that. And like if, yeah, sour cream, exactly. If someone from Mexico came here, I would not insult them by taking them 
to Taco John's. I, I'm just, I'm kind of fascinated, but you have not seen the Mexico week episode of the great. I haven't started British the Baking new Show. season yet though. So I'll have to report back and see if it's uh, as flawed as everyone. Okay. Saying. <laughs> I did watch, um, I don't know if it was the, it was that show or not, but they had a Christmas baking edition of one of oh, these yeah. bake-off competition shows. Those are fun, and I yeah. did, yeah, I did watch that. And that was really fun. I mean, they would give them, they would say, we want like this kind of theme. And then some of them would cook like gingerbread and some of them would cook other. And it was really fascinating. I felt like I learned something watching it, you know, about like flavors and different, uh, you know, what have you. So, yeah. Very cool. I knew you liked that show, so I wanted to ask you about it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. All right. What is the official sign off for this? I don't know. Uh, but look, can okay. can I add can I add one thing at the end? Yes. This is you and me doing this. Um Abby is is Thanks, off Abby, this week. For letting me sub in. Yep. I think she'll be back next week. I, I was just reflecting on the fact that we're almost at the second year of Abby being the host of Upzoned. And unlike the rest of our content team, she is not on, she's not part of our team. She's not someone who meets with us weekly and I talk to, but you know, we slack all the time and obviously we do this show all the time and I keep in touch with her. Um, I just wanted to reflect and invite you to reflect a little bit on just how great Abby is in this role and how important she is to Strong Downs and how, I watch her. She comes here every week, like totally prepared, knows what she's talking about. She's really smart. She communicates well. Um, and she finds and in good her, stories too. She, she finds great stories. She's really passionate about it. And in her professional life, you know, like, like the work that she does for us, un, like, this is my job. This is your job. This is Abby's like part-time little thing she does on the side. The work that she does professionally is just astounding. Like I am so impressed with her. And I just wanted to say how grateful I am that she's part of what we do. And I, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to, because you, you work with her a lot too, behind the scenes. So Yeah, Abby is very cool. I was glad to get to finally actually meet her in person when we were at CNU in Oklahoma City uh, this past spring. That was very cool. And yeah, I mean, part of me wishes that she didn't have that other job so she could, you know, do more strong towns, <laughs> but... I know that she does great work in Kansas City too. So, well, and the planning world needs her. I mean, we need really good planners, and she is definitely one of them. So it's it's exciting to watch her career uh, go where it's going, and just be really impressed with her as a as a person, and also as a as a professional and as a friend. So, yeah, I think awesome. she does our standard sign off. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah.